First Peter chapter three, verse number eighteen. Well, let's read verse seventeen. For it is better if the will of God be so that you suffer for well doing than for evil doing. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometimes were disobedient, when the long, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. The like figure, whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. Not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. For as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, Arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. For he, hath, for he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lust of men, but to the will of God. For the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles, wherein we walked in lasciviousness, lusts, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries, wherein they think it strange that you run not with them to the same excess of riot, speaking evil of you, who shall give account to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead. For this cause was the gospel preached also to them that are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. I read in uh, Christianity.com that um, this little profile about John Wycliffe. Uh, John Wycliffe, the most famous priest of his day, with great learning, was a leading scholar at Oxford. He was chaplain to the King of England. More than important, he spoke out boldly against the errors of the Pope and the, the hierarchy of the Roman Catholic Church, the corruption of the clergy in his day. He criticized not only the organization of the medieval church, but its theology, as well, and argued for a return to the scriptures. If the people were to know, if the people of England were to know the truth, Wycliffe reasoned that they must have the word of God in their own language. So under his direction, the Bible was translated into English for the first time, although his, it was not completed until 1395, um, by his associates, 11 years after his death. Repeatedly condemned and burned by uh, Catholic authorities, copies of Wycliffe's Bible continued in use for over a century until printed Bibles took their place. This work greatly influenced William Tyndale, who made the first printed translation of the New Testament in English. In the spring of 1428, about 40 years after his death, a group of churchmen... Um, by order of Pope Martin V, went and dug up the bones of Wycliffe. And they set them on fire. 
And then they took the ashes of the bones and threw them in the, in the river nearby because of his, quote-unquote, heresies, because of his great harm um, to the, the cause of the Roman Catholic Church. Thirteen years earlier, Wycliffe had been condemned as a heretic in the Council of Constance. There, John Huss, a theologian who had been influenced by Wycliffe, had been burned at the stake. As John Fox said in the Fox's Book of Martyrs, though they dug up his body, burnt his bones, and drowned his ashes, yet the word of God and the truth of his doctrine, with the fruit and success thereof, they could not burn, which yet to this day doth remain. I'm very thankful for the work of John Wycliffe. I'm very thankful to God for those who had a part in the history of our English Bible. So very thankful that we have a Bible in our own language, that we can read and hear and know the word of Christ and know the truth um, of the gospel. How remarkable that God used this one man and his desire that the people of England to know the truth of God's word, to use this one man to bring about so much good, um, not only in the English-speaking world, but all over the world. It's remarkable that he was so hated by the Pope that he was condemned after he died. And then after that, his bones dug up and burnt as a sign of disrespect and dishonor uh, to the work he did in getting people the Bible. But it's rather ridiculous, is it not, that you would hate somebody so much that you'd dig up their bones? Wycliffe was, was already gone. He had run his race, he had finished his course, and uh, I believe by his confession there um, with the Lord Jesus Christ, who had saved him by his precious blood. His body had just decayed, and all that was left was his bones. But they judged him anyway, and they condemned him, and then they burned him, and then they drowned him. But none of that changed John Wycliffe, did it? You think Wycliffe cared that they dug him up? You think he even knew? It didn't bother him that they dug him up. He was already dead. It didn't bother him that they burned him. What can they do to you if you're already dead? That's why it's kind of foolish um, that, that they would take their wrath out on somebody who's already gone. This actually is a good illustration for the theme of our text tonight. And this is the mindset I believe that the Apostle Peter wants us to take concerning the old man, the flesh. And as we walk through uh, this life as pilgrims and strangers, what can they do to us who have died with Christ and have risen with Christ? Now They, they persecuted Wycliffe. They executed Huss. Later on, they would also burn Tyndale. Um, the, the line of Christian martyrs is, and the blood of the martyrs is, is thick and deep of those who have died for their testimony and their stand for the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter tells us who are walking 
with Christ, in this world that hates Christ, that we should arm ourselves with a mindset that we have died with Christ and we are risen with Christ. And so that's the first thing we want to think about tonight, is we want to arm ourselves with this idea, um, the idea that our baptism represents. So I backed up and read a little bit from chapter number three because he starts off talking about that Christ had suffered for sins. Christ entered into this world. The Word made flesh. He dwelt among us. He, he suffered his entire life as, as a man. Then he suffered for our sins there at Calvary. He, he died for our sins. He was buried. And then he rose from the dead. This resurrection by which he declared to the spirits in prison victory. These spirits who roamed the world and did unimaginable sin in days when God was patient until the time um, of judgment for a hundred years. The judgment was pronounced. Judgment was coming. God was going to judge this world with water. A hundred years. And, and, or over a hundred years and and Noah built the ark, and God was patient. He was long-suffering, um, bringing about that judgment. And so while Noah lived faithfully, he was a preacher of righteousness, and he preached and he taught and he showed all these, um, all the, the judgment that was to come. People ignored it and went on about their wickedness, and judgment came. That's a figure Noah entering into the ark is a figure how baptism now saves us. Not by putting away our sin, but in answer to a good conscience toward God. To the Lord who suffered for us, who bore God's judgment on our behalf, who died for us, and rose again for our justification. The Noah was saved by grace in the ark through the judgment of this world, and we are saved in Christ Though the judgment fell, our judgment fell not upon us, it fell upon Christ. So we are safe in Christ. Baptism represents what Christ has done for us. He died for us, he was buried for us, and he rose again for us. And so that we die to our old life and rise again to walk in newness of life. And so this same Jesus who died for us, and rose from the dead, is now gone into heaven and sitting at the right hand of God. Angels and devils and authorities and governments and powers all are made subject unto the Lord Jesus. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the judge of the living and he is the judge of the dead. So, chapter 4, verse 1, For as much then, so, because of all this, as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh. Arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. As you go out into your daily life, as you go home, as you live in this world of sin and temptation, arm yourself. Be prepared. We don't have to arm ourselves with with weapons of this world, well, whether you want to or not, that, that, is, that is your choice, that is your uh, freedom to do so. 
But Peter says, arm yourself with this. The same mind. When you wake up in the morning, arm yourself with this. Get your thinking settled. Get this settled in your mind. And get ready as you'd arm yourself for battle to protect yourself. For he that has suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin. That he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lust of men, but to the will of God. I, I believe Peter is pointing us back to what Christ did for us, pointing us back to our even our baptism and what that baptism represented. As Christ was crucified and died and rose again, let us be crucified with Christ. Let us die to the flesh. Let us walk in newness of life. If our old man, as Paul said, is crucified with Christ, then we shouldn't live the rest of our time here upon the earth for the lust of the flesh, but for the will of God. Now if that old flesh, that old man, that old nature is crucified with him, is, is dying, and as we mortify that old nature, why would we go on and nurture and live for it and have all of our focus on that? Let us walk in newness of life. Let's think about what Paul said in Romans chapter number 6. Starting in verse number 3. No, well, he said, what shall we say then in verse 1? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us were baptized into Jesus Christ, were baptized into his death. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into his death that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we've been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin, for he that is dead is freed from sin. Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more. Death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died in the sin once. But in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. The same thing that Peter is talking about here. The arm yourself with that thought. Christ is risen. He has, he was victorious over death. He was victorious over the grave. He is sitting at the right hand of the Father. And we who have faith in him are united to him. We have union with him. We died with him and the old man. And we have been risen with him. That old nature, that old sinful nature, this, this sinful flesh is, as it were, crucified, dying. But we have life in Christ Jesus the Lord. So 
saturate your mind with the victory that we have in Jesus Christ. Sometimes we can, I can anyway, get overcome with the weakness of the flesh and think about, well, I have these failures and, and I don't do what I want to do and I don't live up to the, the standard that the God has called us to. And rather than repenting and asking God for forgiveness and pressing on, the temptation is to remain there and to, to wallow in that and, to, and just to, the, to continue to look to the old flesh. But the old flesh is, is, is dying. We don't have life there. We have life in Christ. So we should put no confidence in that flesh. We should put no confidence in our own strength, but look to the Lord and His grace. And He promised to sanctify us. He promises to make us like Him. And look to Him and have faith that He will renew our minds and, and renew us and give us uh, grace because He's already won the victory. And we go out to, to face whatever we may face out in, in the world knowing that we have the victory in Christ Jesus. Paul said in Colossians uh, 1, or Colossians 3, 1 through 3, If you be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things of the earth. For you are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. Now that doesn't sound very encouraging for me to come over here tonight and say, You all are dead. Rejoice, you're dead. But no, that's what it's actually what he's saying. What is it that holds us down? What is it that uh, that drag, drags us from the joy that we desire to have in Christ and our peace and our and our hope and our assurance and our comfort? Why it's the the sinful affection. It's that remaining corruption in this old flesh. And if we if we meditate on that only. Now, of course, we are to, to put off sin. We are to, to ask God for forgiveness. But, but if we don't remember that we are risen with Christ and we look to have our joy in this flesh and our hope in this flesh and our happiness all in this life and our affections are in this life and all of our, our hopes and our dreams are in this life, then everything that you're living for is, is going to go away eventually. It's going to be corrupting. It's going to, it's going to get worse and worse. Paul says you're risen with Christ. And despite any, despite the problems, despite what we might have to face in this world, in this body of death, Paul says, set your affection, set your heart on things above, not on the things of the earth. He said, because in reality, this old man, this old nature is, is crucified, it's dying. And your life is hid with God in Christ. And one of this day, this, this body is going to die. And it's going to be laid on the earth. And you'll go to be with the Lord. And then, and then this body will be raised up one day. Then you have a new body, a glorified body, a body like his that won't grow old and won't get sick and won't 
to have any problems with it. And it's outfitted for holiness and outfitted for eternity. So Peter is just telling us to think about these things. Think about that. Arm yourself with this. You look out into the world and see all the, the, the craziness that's going on. And you can get discouraged, but you say, no, I'm going to set my affections on things above. God's going to judge this world. Wouldn't it have been foolish for Noah to spend his whole life concerned about um, his farm or you know, his animals? Yeah, of course he took care of the things he had to take care of. That's not what I'm saying. But if he spent his whole life worrying about uh, the things of this world and, and trying to hang on to them, and, and spent his time worrying about his trees and worrying about this and that on, the, on his home place. When God said it was going to all going to be destroyed. Well, of course, he took care of his animals because, you know, that, that's, he had to eat and so forth. He, took, he did what he had to do. He worked and he labored, all those types of things. But where do you think his heart was? It certainly wasn't in those things that he knew was going to be destroyed. His affections were set on things above. Noah could look around and say, this, this is not going to last. He could look and see all that wickedness and just be sorrowful. Judgment's coming. Judgment's coming. Why will you die? Why will you die? Why will you live your whole life for things that are about to be washed away? Jesus said, in the last days, it'll be like the days of Noah. You can look around, you can turn on the television, you can uh, look, to, look to things going on in society. You just think, why will you die? Why will you live your life for things in this world when judgment is coming? Arm ourselves with this mindset. Don't walk or run to your death, but run to life. Like Pilgrim in the Pilgrim's Progress. Where he runs away from the city of destruction with his fingers in his ears, people trying to talk him out of going. Life, life, eternal life. He doesn't want to hear anything that would keep him from heading towards that, um, the city of his king. Verse 3 says, for in time, for in the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles. Just like Paul said, we're not to sin, so grace may abound. Peter's not saying that either. But we might think of it like this. You, know, you lived as a, before the Lord saved you, you was lost. And you lived as a lost person. And that's plenty. That's plenty. One, if you if you break one law of God, you've bro broken them all, and one sin is bad enough. But for however long you lived outside of Christ, that's plenty. You you had your fill of sin. Well, you must have, or why would you have come to Christ for salvation? Why would you come to? to Christ to forgive you of your sins if you hadn't had enough of it. And it doesn't matter if you were 
eight years old or 28 years old. It doesn't matter. Whenever you came to Christ and believed and trusted in Him, you had had enough of the sin. That time of our life past, that suffices us. That's enough living in the ways of the world. Peter goes on, says we walked in lasciviousness or just unbridled lust. In 2 Peter, he uses this word three times in chapter 2, pernicious ways, filthy conversation, wantonness, or ways to entice to the lust of the flesh. Paul classes it with fornication. But just unbridled lust in any indulgence. That's the way of the world. That's the way of the old man. Lusts or sinful passions that, that drive us to long for that which is forbidden. Drunkenness, revelings. I read the, the word for reveling. The Greek word comes from um, a false god. I believe it's komos, the god of revelry and merrymaking. So they took this God who was a God of merrymaking and that's the word here that's used for revelings. So you just think about uh, Mardi Gras or something like that. It's wild, drunken parties in the streets. Just run, people running wild. Uh, you see uh, a team wins the national championship and then uh, the students go out into the streets all night and people are arrested. And I remember one year Kentucky won the national championship, and uh, they, uh, they were flipping cars over in the streets in Lexington, setting them on fire. Uh, I knew a fellow that was down there after they won the national championship, and he got caught up in that, and they, um, they were flipping cars over, and he was jumping on top of a car, and um, a journalist took a picture of him. He was on the front page of the news. Um, he went and he hid out for about a month. He didn't go back home because <laughs> he's all the police were looking for him for so much damage. But that's what this is: is drunkenness, wildness, craziness. That's the way of the way of the Gentiles: banqueting, drunken parties, abominable idolatries. Now I might say this: you might talk to some people and you say, "Well, what's wrong with that? That sounds like a pretty good time." There's many attractions to people in this. You know, this might be a, an average weekend on a college campus. But the pleasures of the flesh only last for a little while. Those nights of drunken revelry end with morning hangovers. And those uh, weekends of lasciviousness and, and revelings end in sexually transmitted diseases and, and all sorts of other um, sins against your own body. And it doesn't fulfill. It doesn't last. It doesn't carry on because the next weekend, what do they do? More of the same and more of the same. How is it that people 
can take drugs so much that it destroys their lives, that they'll, they'll give everything just to have more. They, they give up their mind and their looks and their, their families and their homes and they'll live on the streets. Because it's never enough. It's never enough. They can never get the satisfaction that they long for. The idolatries might bring smiles for a while. The excesses of wine has joy for a while. The pleasures of this life um, will, will, are pleasurable for a little while, but it's empty and it's worthless and it's meaningless and it's a death sentence. There's no life in it. There's no hope in it. It's a dead end. I read um, something today that this, this young girl was, she's about 10 years old, I think, or she was young, and she's a big girl, and she got picked on at school, from what I understand the story, and she didn't have any friends, and she just felt awkward, like all teenagers do, and she was coerced by those predators that she was a boy trapped in a girl's body. And so um, through her teen years, they, they got her medicine. These uh, ghouls got her medicine, and they, they taught her to, to try to, to be a boy and act like a boy. And, and now when she's 17 years old, um, she said that it was all a mistake, that she was, you know, that, that wasn't true. But now her, her body is destroyed. They, they, they harm this girl for the rest of her life. She was looking for something, longing for something. And they said, well, here's the way to, to happiness. Here's the way to joy. And I'm sure for a while she was probably popular and she, people probably paid close attention to her. But all the things that she longed for, all the things that she thought would make her happy, just brought death. And it's not just for people like her who have been preyed upon by the, the, the demons that, that are involved in this. But it's the same for you know, young football players who, who are told that the way to happiness is, is to being a great athlete and devote all your life to athleticism. Or, or the, the musician who's told that, that he can devote his life to music, and that'll bring ultimate joy and happiness. It's all death without Christ. Well, God saved us from that. We were there. We were out in the world, and, and Christ died for us. He cleansed us from us, and he saved us from that. We're not better than these people. We were these people. We were there among them. That's what he said for in times past, our life may suffice us. He's called us from that. In verse 4, he said, wherein they think it strange that you run not with them to the same excess of right. Christians are strange people to the world. To those who don't know Christ, 
know, if you were saved later in life, you might have run in the people that you used to run around with or go to work with. Boy, you sure have changed. What happened to you? Why don't you run out with us this weekend? No, I, I don't do that anymore. Oh, you're going through one of those Jesus phases or something. You turn religious on it. Uh, you'll, you'll snap out of it. And then they invite you again. No, I don't do that. I don't do that stuff anymore. Jesus has saved my soul. Oh, we're just going to go out and have a little bit of fun. It'll be all right. Just lighten up a little bit. Well, they'll, be, they'll think it's strange. What's happened to him? What's got a hold of him? He's gone all religious on us. They'll be shocked. Shocked at the difference. Shocked at what the Lord has, has done to you, for you. In 2 Corinthians 5, we know why. We know what's happened according to the Scriptures. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 14. For the love of Christ constraineth us. Because this, we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And he that died for all, they which should live, should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Wherefore henceforth? Know we no man after the flesh, yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth know we him no more. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. See, this is sanctification. This is the gospel promise of God changing us. He he made we're a new creation. We're a new man, a new woman. This is the work of God in us. And now it is the love of Christ that constrains us. Christ's love constrains us to walk with him. It's not that that it's not that we, we dislike the, the people we are friends with. Mostly, we, we look at ourselves and are ashamed of what we did. Because Christ had opened our eyes, but oh, how we're thankful. And it's not that we think that we're better than other people or we've outgrown it or anything such as that. It's the love of Christ which constrains us. Those old things, they just, they just passed away. There's, there's nothing in that for us anymore. We don't run with them because we're now on a different road. When we think about what Jesus has done for us and what he's given to us, what he saved us from, we can't go back to the old way. That way has nothing for us anymore. The Christian road is a narrow road. And it's often a lonely road. But we don't run with them because they're running a different race. They're going to a different location that I don't want to go to. And so Peter says, they'll speak evil of you. So after a time or two, when they realize that you're serious, and they'll say, well, 
You believe so-and-so they're too good for us. They're stuck up. Mr. Mr. Holier than thou doesn't want to hang out with us anymore. Well, you're going to go uh, read your Bible and, and pray and go to church and all those type of things. Or they might bring up past sins and mention it as mo- much as possible. Or they'll watch it like a hawk and, and whenever you slip or whenever you uh, uh, fall, they'll be there to point it out and call you a hypocrite and all those types of things. You fool, you, you uh, goody two-shoes, you know, whatever, right? All the, the things they might say. Whose judgment matters, though? Verse 5, Who shall give account to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead? For this cause was the gospel preached also to them that are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. People might judge you, but whose judgment matters? Whose judgment matters? Let's, th- let's just think through this whole section here and think about this question. Whose judgment matters? Peter wants us to have the mind that we died with Christ. So if we died with Christ, we've ceased from sin. Dead men don't sin. Dead men don't do anything. The body's just there. So we've died with Christ. That being the case, we spend the rest of our days doing God's will, not the will of human nature. If our old flesh is crucified, dying, if we're putting it to death, then we're not living for that, we're living for the will of God. And the lost who vilify you for godliness are going to be judged by the Lord one of these days, who judges the living and the dead. But this is why the gospel is preached to those who are dead. And I believe this to mean to those who have the mind of Christ. So, We've, I've read many scriptures here that, that, that Paul and Peter both have said that we are to think of ourselves, arm ourselves with this mind, consider ourselves to be, to be dead with Christ. Our baptism says that we have died to the old ways and we've risen to walk in newness of life. So I believe Peter is saying that those, the gospel was preached to those who are dead, those who have died with Christ. And though we be judged according to men in the flesh as being stuck up or too good or holier than thou or evil or women-hating or deceptive, power-hungry hypocrites, despite that, we live according to God in the Spirit. We walk in the Spirit. We fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. We live in Christ. And that's why the gospel was preached. That Jesus Christ died for sinners. All those revelings and all that lasciviousness and drunkenness and all that sin Peter mentioned that we used to have, aren't you glad that Jesus died for sinners? That he was lifted up on that cross, that he bore the wrath that was due me He paid my debt to justice and said it was finished and gave up the ghost. 
and he rose again from the dead, I might have everlasting life. Aren't you glad that Jesus saved you? Aren't you glad tonight that, that he delivered you from your sins, that you're no longer in bondage, that you're not on your way to hell? No matter what happens tonight, aren't you glad, child of God, that you're not going to hell? And no matter what happens, you are, your life is hid in Christ. You have everlasting life waiting for you. That your sins were judged by God in Christ Jesus. Wicked people might judge you. The devil might judge you. The demons might judge you. But the judgment of men is regulated to this world. And the judgment of men really amounts to very little. Paul told the church of Corinth, it is a very small thing that I should be judged of you or any man's judgment. He said, yeah, I judge not my own self, for I know that by myself yet am I not hereby justified, but he that judgeth me is the Lord. Does it really matter if someone who's lost thinks you're going in the wrong direction? If you're driving home tonight and somebody stops you on the way home and says, you're going the wrong way, you've got to turn around. Will that bother you? Will you think twice? Well, maybe I don't live this direction. Maybe I, maybe I am going the wrong way. You say, who in the world is that crazy man? He doesn't know where I'm going. He doesn't know where I live and... and even if he did, he wouldn't know how to get where I want to go. Well, why do you care? Why does it bother you that someone who is lost tells you you're going the wrong way when you have the way? Jesus Christ is the way. You know the way. You know where you're going and how you're going to get there. Who cares if the world judges you wrong? They're lost. That's what Jesus said. They are lost. They don't know the way. They don't know where they're going. They're, they have no idea up from down spiritually. So why do we care if they judge us? Do you really want to listen to the advice and guidance and be influenced by people who reject the Lord Jesus and are on their way to be judged by Him? No, the judgment of Christ is what matters. The Christian is judged by the world now. The world is judged by Christ then. And the judgment of the world really doesn't matter a whole lot. The judgment of Christ is final and eternal. Wycliffe lived his life in light of the coming, um, in light of the Lord Jesus Christ. He trusted in him. He believed that Christ saved him he, by, by grace through faith. And he lived his life being hated and, and persecuted. With all that, he put it aside. And the world judged him. And then the king judged him. And then councils judged him and the Pope judged him and then the people dug him up and they burned him and they judged him. You know what that did to John Wycliffe? It didn't do a thing to him. He didn't mind. He didn't care what the world thought because he knew he was right and what he was doing was right and good. Put that mind on that this body of flesh, that, that sinful flesh, those temptations of it's only temporary. And then it'll be gone. 
But have the mind that you have victory in Christ, you're hidden with Christ, you're risen with Christ, you have everlasting life. And don't give a second thought to those who are telling you they're going the wrong way. Trust in Him. Trust in Him and know that He is with you. And you need not mind the judgment of this world.